0: The busy now he's gonna move like right along to McGregor That's
1: you know. so I've gone through all of the stages of Vince Gilligan I feel from uh wondering who why why is this guy going to create how is this guy going to create Breaking Bad his episodes aren't great to this is interesting to he really gets the x-files and now I realize I'm at a point where I'm seeing written by Vince Gilligan and I got really excited. Uh, But I would say Folia Deux is the first episode that I've seen where I'm like, yes, this makes sense. This guy is going to create one of the most acclaimed television shows of its generation.
0: I have a little bit of, I mean, I can see that, but I have a little bit of a different reaction to Folia Deux. I think that it's a fine episode. And I think what makes it work is because it is very, you can see the wheels turning in Vince Gilligan's head. I what I like about do which elevates it is that you can easily see a version of this episode that almost entirely takes place in that cafeteria and that it ends with yeah them being rescued but what makes this episode work I think or at least what makes it interesting to watch and interesting to to talk about is that it doesn't do that that the episode ends about twenty minutes before you actually think it's going to end, and then we get this very, very strange sort of meta commentary twenty minute stretch on the X Files,
1: which is. Uh, I mean, he wrote he he was the one who wrote Small Potatoes, right?
0: Yeah, he was.
1: Th- that's the same exact thing. I mean that that is part of the structure of his his episodes. The killer or whoever's doing it usually gets caught very quickly. Frankly. For it to be the 20-minute mark before they really get get their hands on him or shoot him or whatever is a long time for a Vince Gilligan episode, and he likes to play with the consequences of catching the bad guy in a way, because number one, the implications of what the nature of the villain are, are are usually more interesting, and they make it... Uh, Again, that's just usually just the beginning of their problems rather than the end of the story, Uh, whether it's something like Paper Hearts where, yes, they knew he's doing it, but he's playing so many mind games that it's almost better if they hadn't caught him in the first place, or Small Potatoes where he's able to elude them and now their chase of him has awakened new plans in him.
0: Yeah, I think that's right because what 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 I find interesting about Vince Gilligan's episodes of The X-Files is that he was really sort of the first television writer that I kind of realized was doing something different. And what I mean mm. by that is that like he was the first television writer I actually noticed was act- was writing television because his episodes always had a very different flavor than the rest of the X-Files and he could bang out a normal X-Files episode and he has done it but they were never as good as things like small potatoes or foliada or yeah uh, you know whatever else he's written right I mean um, I think that or paper hearts he wrote paper hearts right yes I think he did so, so he's really interested in the monster in Monster of the Week. He's not as interested in Mulder and Scully, although he is. I don't think that that is his bread and butter as a writer, because other writers have defined and explored those characters. I think really thoroughly. And in yeah. an episode like Fully do, especially, it, it's a little bit of a different thing, of course, because we're not really getting into the head of the monster this week. We're not really spending a lot of time with the monster alone. This, but, but what, I mean, fully I do um, literally means madness of two as the episode says. It's a, I don't know if it's an actual medical term, but it is a term for a shared psychosis essentially that is, that is kind of passed from person to person. I think and, it's
1: along the lines of Stockholm syndrome kind of a thing where, where, uh, it's a psychological
0: phenomenon. I don't know how well it's understood, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy. And and so really what it is 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 the episode is getting into the head of the monster by showing us what or how the monster is affecting these other people. We don't really ever yeah. get a sense of what it is, who it is, what it's doing, why it's doing this. We never really get a clear sense of whether or not the things that Mulder and the other people are seeing, the the zombies, for example, actually exist. It's a very off-putting and off-center episode.
1: I would say that the biggest off-putting part about the episode is who is the monster. Yes, there is this creature walking around that's doing something to people and turning them into zombies, but to all outside purposes, these are normal people. This is a guy who's probably about as good to all purposes looks as good as of a telemarketing boss as can be his his employees are speaking like normal people and they're talking normally and it's really only this one guy who's able to see this and you know later molder and he's the person who kills somebody he's the person who holds people hostage what is the monster doing that's bad it's so almost metaphysical that it almost doesn't matter
0: Right. And, and I mean, I think that that's arguable, of course, because yeah. we don't actually know that the, the, the monster is doing anything, as yeah. you say. I mean, certainly, um, you know, the guy, uh, I forgot, I didn't write his name down, but, um, you know, the guy who takes them hostage and then is, is, is shot yeah. by the, the, the FBI SWAT team, Mulder, of course, they are, they are seeing things, but we are not sure yeah. if that is actually, you know, a, a good representation of reality. Yeah. And, the only one who 's doing- this is something that Vince Gilligan likes to play around with, of course you know th- th- he 's very interested in playing around with with subjective reality versus objective reality, kind of what what is objective and then what is our subjective impressions of that i mean that 's what bad blood was all about um, like if if this monster like taking this episode literally right, if this monster is injecting some sort of venom into the bodies of its victims and turning mm-hmm. them into zombies. That is a bad thing. But we don't know if that's what's happening.
1: Yeah, that damage is not quantifiable within the episode. The employee who, again, holds a bunch of people hostage and shoots somebody is the only one who's done any quantifiable damage. Now, this is not necessarily to say that we are on the side of the monster. And it is very, I would say, clever of the episode to not allow us to get too sympathetic to the monster because... There is a version of the episode where this monster is just a a guy who wants to live and work his telemarketing thing, and he's just ugly, and he has some friends among the thing, and certain people believe them to be tainted, but everything's nice and happy. I mean, there is that version of the episode that makes the true monster the employee, but I think it's also clever of the episode to make it that it is very possible that this is a real threat and that— the lesser of the evil is to shoot this boss
0: and i and and i think that that what's even even probably more relevant about the episode is that the the question in a certain sense doesn't even matter yeah. i mean you know this this episode again is really really interested in in viewing subjective reality and and how people's impressions of of a situation can really color you know how they uh, interpret the 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 reality that is around them. I mean that famous video of the the bear like dancing through people playing basketball, and it mm-hmm. asks you to count how many times the basketball is uh, passed between players. And you know your first time watching it, you don't notice that there's like a guy in a bear costume dancing through it. The bear in that in that video is hiding in plain
1: sight, hiding in the light, hiding between whatever the the various phrases that are used in this, and. You have a guy who is looking at this and saying, there's a fucking bear, there's a fucking bear, shoot it, it's going to kill all of us. And everybody else is watching and just saying, this is people playing basketball, you're the crazy one here. And again, it, 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 it it's it is an interesting notion that this episode has the people who are able to see the truth – Not taking care of it methodically. It would be one thing if this guy just went up and shot the guy he thought was a monster. That would be one thing. What he does is have the entire uh, uh, – he he holds people hostage. He wants this broadcast. He needs to tell the story to – he needs to explain this to everybody. And that's, I guess, where it turns – where it crosses the line from this is somebody who is taking a a reaction to something he believes is a threat to – Something far more dangerous.
0: Oh, sure, and 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 to be clear, I you know I don't think that the 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 worker that takes these people hostages oh, yeah. is, is a good guy. No, I mean, no that's no. not the right thing to do. But at the same uh, time, I think that you know what what why he does that is it's coming from a place of, I think, wanting to save these people or thinking that they're, they're in danger. I mean, you know, this is something like Munchausen by proxy, for example, you know, I mean, it, it's a kind of, this is the kind of episode that is taking a lot of psychological, uh, you know, traumas or psychological disorders and kind of, you know, just kind of collapsing into one yeah. episode because that, that's kind of where this is coming from. And, you know, he wants to save these people and how he is going to save them as he is, going to take them hostage and that's obviously ridiculous but but if you view it from the lens of this man is being driven a bit crazy by by seeing this it, it's at least an understandable yeah. motivation if if not a justifiable one
1: no and, and let, let's be fair i think if any of us had this experience of suddenly realizing that somebody is actually a monster i think it would fuck with our sense of reality a little bit let's say uh that uh, it, and i guess that's why I, like I, this. I i
0: i had that uh i had that realization in uh november 2016 when donald trump won the election and i realized that 40 yeah. percent of my fellow americans are monsters so there you go
1: <laughs> yeah um and that's certainly a theme that this episode is breaking up for sure um How how do you react to when you know that something is a legitimate threat when nobody else views it as and if you take it with the severity you believe it deserves, you're going to be seen as insane when this is just – if everybody could see the monster in plain sight, they would understand and they would shoot with
0: yeah, exactly. And and then I guess you know how how does that feed into into how Mulder and Scully react to this though? Because you know, one of the one of the other things that I really like about this episode or appreciate about it is that Mulder thinks this is a bullshit assignment. He thinks he's being jerked around. You know, he he's doing his job though. He's being a professional. He's doing his threat assessment. Um, but then he gets into this situation where he gets taken hostage, and you know Mulder and Scully working together, um, even though they are not in contact with each other. Scully knows exactly what Mulder would be doing in there. Mulder knows that Scully is going to do everything that he can that she can to to protect him but but it 's not enough and then later on in the episode when Mulder starts ranting and raving about you know monsters in plain sight and thinking that this guy is actually real. The 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 dynamic that Mulder and Scully have developed over the, the over the past few years that is emblematic in the previous twenty minutes of this episode goes out the window because now Scully doesn't know if she can trust him anymore, which I also think is an interesting juxtaposition.
1: Yeah, this is could be another example of let, let's go to grotesque. Mulder gets very personally drawn into a case, and he begins to act like uh, the killer in the situation, and so. It is very possible that he just spent a an extraordinarily intimately tense moment with this guy and is now kind of catching his madness for a little bit. That's what Mulder does. That is the way his sympathies work, and Scully is, for all she knows, just seeing that again. And it's her job as Scully to just pull him back from that uh, until he snaps out of it.
0: I, I think that's a really good. Um, it's a really good comparison, actually. I hadn't thought of grotesque, but in, in a lot of ways, Foliadu is the, the better version of yeah. grotesque because, you know, I don't, I don't want to relitigate grotesque, but suffice it to say, it was not very successful at what it was trying to do. Whereas Foliadu is, and I don't know what the difference is. I think it might just be that Vince Gilligan knows how to construct a well, story better,
1: and, and yeah, it could be because grotesque was a. Typical mystery. The entire time, it's "ooh, who's the killer? What's going on? What's happening?" And then it becomes revealed. Oh, it's the other. Uh, it's his mentor. Uh, twist ending. Uh, Folie à is not really interested in making a twist ending over who the killer is. We very quickly s- re- we know from the first scene that this employee is doing something dangerous and when he takes the building hostage this is, it feels like an inevit- inevitability uh we know because we have a couple of perspective shots from him that the boss is this monster and that he's doing some zombification to these employees uh it's the kind of, it's an episode that tells us all the information and is more interested in working with the implications of that and what that means where grotesque is just shocking us with the revelation itself.
0: Yeah, I, I actually, yeah, that's that's a good way to look at Vince Gilligan episodes. I think in total because he isn't really interested in mystery. He's not really yeah. interested in in misdirection, as a lot of X Files episodes are. He's he's more interested in just establishing the ground rules of the episode and then and then basically spinning it out um, as far as it can go, which is also kind of how he constructed breaking bad so yeah it's the more columbo style
1: of mystery show it's still and then you get the tensions from a very different source not about revealing the mystery but of the cat and mouse game and the the these two forces circling each other and how are we know that the good guy is going to prevail against the bad guy, but we don't know if it's going to be a Pyrrhic victory. We don't know how they're going to do that. We don't know what plan
0: they're going to get in that. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, you know, the other the other thing that I, I do want to mention is that, you know, we talk about Vince Gilligan a lot in, in, in Fouillard. And one of the things that I think is really striking, it's, you know, kind of a um something I always wanted to mention, but I wasn't sure if it was going to be uh, you know appropriate or not because maybe it's just a one off or a two off, but but he's very good at constructing set pieces. He's very yeah. good at at constructing scenes that are very memorable and very off putting I mm. mean that scene where Mulder is like becoming unhinged in the room with Skinner and Pincus and then essentially like eventually pulls his gun on Pincus and and, yeah. and, Scully, or, and Skinner has to talk him down or the scene in the hospital. Um, is just creepy as fuck and oh. it, it's got this like increasing sense of dread all throughout it that is really well done
1: what I loved I mean I loved the hostage scene I thought that was again that was when I watched that and I said okay this feels like something out of Breaking Bad because one of the things I really loved about Breaking Bad was how a lot of things fall apart with the tiniest little thing usually just a really weird coincidence or somebody pushing a little too hard. Like there's an early episode of breaking bad where, uh, the, where Walt and Jesse are captured by an evil meth dealer and they essentially have poison meth and they're trying to convince him to take it. And they're basically, Jesse's basically like, Oh, look, look, it's meth. You love meth. And he's like, yes, I love meth. I'm going to take this meth. He's sold it. He's done it. He's going to take the meth. He's going to die. They'll get out of there. And then Jesse pushes a little more. He says, oh, it's got chili powder in it. That's my specialty. And he's like, no, I don't want that anymore. And they completely fail. I mean, Mulder's talking to this guy very calm, and it seems to work. He's doing a little bit of the rapport. And then he pushes a little too much with a yes, I understand. And that pisses him off. He he He's doing well, and then he pushes a little too much. Or coincidences like Mulder is about five seconds from being able to pull his gun and stop this situation. One shot and this is taken care of. And that's the moment that the other agent decides to call and all hell breaks loose. I love yeah. that. I love that about this because it's it's tense and horrible and, again, just a couple of seconds of timing either way and it fucks everything. It, it Everything is – on such a house of cards, and when it collapses, it's going—it's apocalyptic. The tension just ratchets.
0: Although I do have to say, though, that the the holster thing always kind of and kind of confuses me because I, I thought the point of a holster was that the gun would be like available easily and quickly. But anyway, <laughs> that's a side issue. Yeah, I, I guess don't, I don't.
1: I guess you don't want it to be uh, too easy for somebody to just grab out of your po- out of the holster, though.
0: That is true, yeah. But then again, I see cops walking around. You could just put yeah. the gun out. Not that I would ever do it, of course, because I don't want to get shot. But it just seems odd to me. Yeah, yeah, I I'm with you. And I I mean, you know, I think that that also it's his episodes always kind of end on a very. I mean, the you know, the X Files is infamous for ending episodes on ambiguous notes, and I think that sometimes they go a little bit. Too <laughs> far with that, just because that's how the X Files works. I mean, a prime example of that is chinko which we talked about a few weeks ago, where Scully burns the doll up, and then the end of the episode: <laughs> "Oh my God, the spooky doll is back out of the ocean again. How did it get there?" And you're like, "Really?" Hmm. But what I like about this is that it's never, it's never resolved. We we don't know yeah. what was happening, really, and and it, it's so great that the ending ambiguous note that a lot of X Files have to end on. Is also telegraphed in the middle of this episode when they're talking to Pincus about, oh, well, did you live here? Did you live there? Yeah. You know, why were you moving around so much? And what happens at the end of the episode? Well, apparently Pincus goes somewhere else. And you don't see him. He's not actually in the shot, the last scene of the episode, but you know it's him because of the way that that guy is talking, very, very similarly yeah. to how the guy at the beginning of the episode was talking.
1: And let's also talk about what this is all symbolic of. I mean, we are in an era, uh, even more so than in the 90s, but we're in the, an, an era of mass shootings. And this is a stand-in for kind of the disgruntledness and the horribleness of working in a soul-sucking tele, uh, telemarketing job. I mean, you ha- yes, you have the monster boss, but there's also the floor manager on this who's a total dick and a monster in his own way. Uh and yes that maybe Dial little... and smile. Yeah, I mean it's a little on the nose in that little bit of social critique, but this is an awful job and in a way the fa- there is an inevitability to people working in this job reaching a breaking point and snapping. It's not like yeah. it's not like you need somebody to be a secret supernatural monster in order for a white guy to snap and start start shooting people.
0: All right, well, I think that's all we have for Fully Before we move on to the last episode of Season 5, The End, I do want to take an opportunity to remind all of you that this podcast is supported by you. Yes, you listening to this right now. If you would like to donate, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. All right, The End. It is the fifth season of The X-Files. In a lot of ways, it feels like a series finale, which is an interesting choice that we will talk about. And I assume this is in some ways kind of the prologue to the movie. Yeah, the the movie, I mean, we will see it next week, but the, the movie picks yeah. up, I think, I don't know, a couple months after this, something like that.
1: Which I guess is a, because that's a very weird choice. Again, I, I still haven't, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I saw it when I, when it came out as not an X-Files fan and... So I'm assuming the movie has to begin by reminding us, oh, the X-Files have burned down and Mulder and Scully aren't working together and here's the same. Like, there is a lot of shit that they need to cover in order to get the casual fans understanding what the hell is going on because I, who have never watched the X-Files before, know that the show is about Mulder and Scully and they are FBI agents who do weird cases.
0: Yes, and I, I mean, we will talk about the movie more next week, of course, but... I I think that the only thing I will say about the setup for the first X Files movie is that it was a really smart choice to shut the X Files down. Uh, And I will get into that next week when we talk about the movie. But you know because they they had pulled that card before of course i mean the end, the first you know at the end yes. of the first season the x files was shut down at the time that felt like a very gauntlet throwing move that felt like a show that was wanting to switch it up wanting to to show off its its confidence a little bit more and of course the x files were reopened a few episodes later but it was for a good reason and sort of like established Skinner as a real character, a character to pay attention to, yeah. because he was the one that reopened the X-Files. You know, he had that great line, I forget what episode it was, you know, it was like, we used to have an, a department that would handle this sort of thing, and I'm reopening it, because, Yeah, you know, fuck the cigarette-smoking man, and fuck the conspiracy. Um,
1: yeah, that's the moment you realize Skinner is kind of a badass, and then you like him. Right,
0: exactly. And, and this doesn't have that. I mean, the X-Files... Don't get shut down by by Skinner. They get shut down by the Justice Department. Uh, you know the unspoken Janet yeah. Reno, which I think is a nice touch. Um, and it's not that Skinner can really do anything about it because it, it's not coming from the conspiracy this time. It's not coming from shadowy figures outside of the government's uh, you know oversight. It is coming from the government. Yeah. It is coming from the Justice Department and.
1: Yeah. And not only are we just dealing with bureaucracy because the end of season one shutdown was about bureaucracy, the files have been burned now. There is no going back on this. It's destroyed. Well, if they want, they'll be able to get them back. But I mean, the symbolic weight of them standing in the burned, completely burned out office is undeniable yeah
0: yeah well i i think the way to to kind of get into let's back up and talk a little bit about the x-files as a production as a television show and not necessarily talk about the text of this episode because there's a lot going on here and one of the reasons there's a lot going on here is because this is the last episode of the show that was filmed in vancouver um they moved to Los Angeles to to film the show in the in the sixth season. From the sixth to the ninth seasons, they film in Los Angeles. Mm. So this was
1: so they're rebuilding the set anyway. So they might as well, trash it, it.
0: right? Exactly. I mean, like that was kind of <laughs> part of it. I think that there's no reason why the X Files office has to be burned to the well, not burned to the ground, but burned up. Um, but it's yeah. a nice little metatextual commentary. It's a joke essentially. Yeah. It's it's a way to uh move it forward by by resetting the deck a little bit um in in the same way that they had they opened the episode with a little bit of an in joke because it's the first time that Vancouver, British Columbia, which has always stood in for pretty much every mid sized American city you can you can imagine over the course yeah. of the five seasons, is finally itself
1: yeah I mean there was a lot of meta textual commentary in a way I feel at the end when they're talking about how. They're liter- they are literally talking about how they're risking the X Files on this very big risk of talking to the Justice Department or making a feature film. This show is about to take several big risks and it's making a gamble. Now I would just assume the show is a little more confident in itself than maybe the characters were, but a risk is being taken. Big changes are going to happen. And that can always mess with something. Yeah,
0: no, of course, because this, in a lot of ways, is is them examining what The X-Files is, where where it is, where the story yeah. is, where the characters are, where the production is, what they're going to be doing in season six, how this is feeding into the movie. You know, The X-Files has become this, like, gigantic hit. It is, uh, you know, a mass cultural phenomenon. I mean, if memes were around in the 90s, there would have been memes about The X-Files. And, you know, season six is the beginning of the long, slow decline of the X-Files. I'm not going to beat around the bush. No. Um, at least not not necessarily in terms of, of, of quality of the show, because I still think that season six and to some degree season seven um, are still quite good. And seasons eight and nine have their own charms as well. But the show starts to slip in the ratings a little bit. You know, season five um, was the best that the show ever did in terms of, of you know, that. And... The movie came at a really good time. It was a gamble that that mostly worked, I think. You know, the, the, the movie did enough that it was seen as a success. It's a little weird in hindsight to look back at it. It's a little weird to talk about the end as a season finale because it is so wrapped up in the movie coming out in a month. You know, this ended yeah. in May and the movie came out in June of, of 1998. It, it's just a very strange season finale. I mean, I started out by saying that it feels like a series finale, and it, it kind of does in a lot of ways. I mean, it, 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 it tries to wrap up some storylines that have been going on for a long time. It doesn't wrap up most of the mythology, though, because the movie deals with a lot of the mythology, the black oil and things like that. But it also introduces new elements that make you think that the show is going back to the beginning and in an attempt to wrap back around on itself in some weird way.
1: Yeah, I was, I
0: I, I, I mean, the clearest example of that is the, is the
1: cigarette smoking man and Jeffrey Spender in this, who is becoming a Spender is becoming a crycheck level character. I would say he's becoming somebody that's going to be important in the mythology episodes. He's going to have some kind of role. I have no idea what his role is going to be. Uh, I think I like that he's kind of a black box in some ways. Um, and the relationship between the cigarette smoking man and him is a very weird mirror to Deep Throat and Mulder. Again, Deep Throat was a kind of symbolic father character to Mulder and cigarette smoking man is the literal father of Jeffrey Spender. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's very true. And, uh,
1: I mean Spender might be the antagonist Mulder version. He's his he he's his Jungian
0: shadow. Yeah, I mean we don't know a lot about Spender right now, of course. I, I I'm curious how you react to him because I very much do not like him and I think that the show is, yeah. is doing as much as they can to make you not like him almost transparently.
1: It's it's very ambiguous who he is because on the one hand like, like, there's that bit where Mulder's saying, the first time I met you, I just thought you were naive, then I thought you were arrogant, and now I wonder what you're hiding. I mean, there are many possibilities that Jeffrey Spender could be. He could be somebody who's just a really ambitious guy who wants to have a really illustrious career in the FBI. He wants to be director one day, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to get to that point. He is the careerist. I mean, we, we he's a an exaggerated version of skelly's friend from that season one episode uh, oh yeah done much more seriously and much more damaging but it's possible that that's who that guy is and his hatred of Mulder comes from the 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 incident with his mother frankly where he is mortified and embarrassed and worried about his mother and here comes a a, another rival agent who is You know, outranks him and is out and blocking him in every in every way, and he's just encouraged his mother's delusions. That could be a version of Spender. Spender could be somebody who knows a lot more than he does, or he could be somebody who is the good cop and really does want to make sure that certain things get solved. And he's playing his cards very close to the chest. He knows that the cigarette smoking man. Is somebody who's doing some kind of shadowy thing and he's going to vaguely play along with it in order to root it out. He's, but certainly Spender is not somebody who trusts many people, I think. Yeah,
0: sure. Well, I think that, that it's funny that you say that, that you know, he might blame Mulder for, for what happened with his mother, which I think is true. But at the same time, it shows that I, I think where they're going with that is they are demonstrating that Spender is not very observant because. Mulder mm. was the one in the episode if you remember like I think that that Spender has a lot of He has a a preconceived notion of of Mulder, and Mulder in that episode or in that two-parter was basically like, no, I don't think your mother was abducted by aliens, dude. I don't think aliens exist. Will you stop talking to me like I'm the person who is doing this to your mother? I'm not doing this. Meanwhile, Scully is the one who's buying into this. Scully is the one who went with her on the bridge, and Scully is the one sitting in that briefing room at the beginning of the end spender doesn't seem to care that she's there so it it, it's you know the the end i I mean his mother but i think this ties into what was happening in the back end of the episode in terms of the justice department investigation and them shutting down the x-files and all hmm. this kind of stuff because what what i think this the episode is trying to say is that it doesn't matter what's Mulder thinks it doesn't matter what Scully thinks what matters is what people think of them
1: yeah his mother is the person who's been saying oh agent Mulder he does these this kind of work and didn't you see the thing on the conference where he was talking about that and I don't think Spender
0: Spender seems too angry
1: to do the research in a way
0: again I am not a Spender fan I don't like Spender I don't think you're supposed to like Spender yeah. But I also don't think Spender is very good at his job, and I don't, and I, and I don't think that comes from a place yeah. of laziness. I just think that comes from a place of ability.
1: Mm, yeah, he's ambitious, but he doesn't really have a. He doesn't have a passion for the work in the same way that Scully or Mulder do, or even Diana does. Um, he's. Interested in the career ladder, I would say he doesn't really care about this investigation as an investigation. He's not interested as as far as he's not he's the one who's not worried about the victim, but about.
0: Who gets the credit, right? And and not only that, but I, I keep going back to that that briefing room scene at the beginning of the episode when Skinner yeah. and Mulder walk in, and Spender is immediately put out by it. And he's going over, okay, well, this Russian guy was shot, and what's going on here? And Mulder says, "I don't think that's what happened. Here's what I think happened, and here's yeah. why I think it happened." And Spender, instead of being open to his ideas, now of course some of it is due to the fact that it's Mulder, yeah. but. I don't really get a sense that Spender would be okay with anyone in that room questioning this. He's very locked into his version of events and he's not willing to listen to other viewpoints, especially this early in an investigation when you can air other viewpoints before an accepted version of events gets locked into place.
1: And even if before we get into the other viewpoints thing, He's just shown a video. Mulder is not making an unreasonable request to say, wait, can you just show me that clip again that I just saw? We're all federal investigators. It will not hurt any of us to get a second look at it. I think that's a really reasonable request, no matter, no matter who it comes from. That is something anybody would have
0: asked. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, Mulder's coming into that room late. If no, If no other reason than that, he would like to see it again. And – I mean, then okay. So let's talk about let's talk about Diana then, because you know she's obviously a new character. We haven't seen her before. Mulder has this romantic history with her. They never worked together, um, but or at least they didn't work together like on the X Files. But what do you make of her? What I mean does this does this fit in with Mulder's history? Do you think?
1: You know, I I, I did make a note that for Fire was the episode where we met the old girlfriend. Yes. Right, And that was terrible because that didn't really work with our conceptions of the characters. But I don't know. Diana seems to fit because I can buy that Mulder did have a a little more in the way of friends and colleagues before he ended up meeting with Scully. But I can also see that things not quite working out with that. The two of them their careers do take them in different directions maybe the particular depths of some of Mulder's obsessions were things that Diana wasn't ready to deal with she alluded to certain troubles that i'm sure we'll get into um so spoiler alert i did look up look her up and i did see that she's in a couple more episodes so i know she doesn't die but
0: um they <laughs> well you don't you don't uh, hire but, you don't but... hire Mimi Rogers to kill her in one episode yeah
1: no, then that that is fair. Um, but I, I I'm not sure how well I buy the triangle they're trying to set up.
0: Yeah, uh, I I was about I was about it, to mention that I I hate that yeah. part of the episode a lot. I think that, well, but... because
1: it, yeah, it's about it's pitting the two women against each other when, by all rights, the two of them should be working very well together and. They do both kind of complement things in Mulder that they have. And I think that they could make a – the version of the show that's the three of them solving cases together I can see working in a way. Unfortunately, they have to pit these up against each other. And, and it's lazy. Part it's of cliche, me – It's
0: cliche. It's a little sexist. Well,
1: yeah. I mean I, 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 I like a charitable interpretation of the episode in which – this is something that's just manipulated by this kid who is – I his conversation with Scully at the end when he's talking about, oh, people say a completely different thing than they mean, he is someone who has heard some very adult thoughts in his young life and who has already become extraordinarily cynical about it. So I think there is a version of this kid that's just fucking with these two and putting these ideas in their heads and knowing exactly how to kind of – fuck with these people who are making him go through tests and ask him all these questions that he doesn't
0: like. At the same time though. Yeah. He can't do that unless That's part of it is stre- true. Stretch. And so, you yeah. know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that Gibson praised to me, it's some, we will talk about him in a minute, but I, I just, I don't, I don't like you said. I mean, I don't like the fact that they're being put it together. I think it's lazy. I think it's cliche. And I don't think Mm -hmm. it makes any sense, frankly. I mean, yes, you know, we've talked about this in the past that a lot of people were shipping Mulder and Scully and I am leaving it up to your imagination, whether or not the show actually goes there ever. Um, But it's, it's feeding into the shipping in a way, which I find that the X-Files usually didn't do. And, I don't know why they're doing it. I don't know why they think it's a good use of screen time to to have Mimi Rogers and Scully give each other these kind of catty looks. I, I just I don't get it.
1: I mean, is this a lead up to them having a big kiss in the movie? I don't know. Like, if, 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 I'm worried that that's going to be a thing. And that's that's what they're seeding because they know that uh, in the big summer blockbuster, they're going to have have, have them finally kiss for real.
0: Well, we're just going to have to wait and see next week. We'll find out very quickly.
1: (laughs) But yeah, I I feel like they're trying – the most charitable interpretation I can come up with is it's professional jealousy. Uh, And given that – I mean, I buy Mulder when he's saying to Diana, you know, she makes me work for it, but he's recognized that – Uh, the challenge that she gives him and the burden of proof that she forces him to come up with has helped his work. Um, I think he's shitty at showing it, but I think in the back of his mind, he does recognize that, again, he's become stronger for what she's made him, the the way she's made him work. Um, I think he recognizes that he doesn't need a yes man, so to speak. Um, But from... Scully's point of view, he's still Mulder. He's still the one who tells her, oh, do this thing, and I'm not going to explain why, and he still doesn't take her as seriously as she would like to be taken and all of that, Um, and she still doesn't have her own desk.
0: Well, now she really doesn't have one because the office has been burned down. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think your your idea about having them be sort of like a, we're all work on the X-Files together is interesting. And I, I can certainly see, you know, that that's the, inchar- that's the charitable interpretation of that, right? That it's professional jealousy, that Diana feels a sense of loss, yeah. uh, you know, a sense of... Yeah. A sense of regret for breaking up with Mulder and then fleeing the country uh, because I'm sh- this is something that yeah. because I'm sure that Mulder this is, is not like an easy person to be a, a, in a relationship with at all.
1: But yeah, and sh- she can also be excited about working on the X-Files because this you know, in a way she feels cast out of the cool kids club because look at what they get to investigate. And I'm in Berlin doing this stuff.
0: Although I'm sure Berlin was a very exciting place to be in the 90s. Yeah, that's true. A lot of sex clubs. <laughs> that... I don't know. I don't know what goes on in Berlin. I've never been there. Well, let's talk about Gibson Praise then, because I—I I mean,
1: the sh- I'm glad the show recognizes that. Like, I'm glad the show makes him supposed to be creepy and off-putting. Yeah. Well, Again, I don't know there, if he's—I don't is... know if he's
0: creepy. He's definitely off-putting. Well, but. And I'm not also really sure why he's supposed to live in the Philippines. I don't know what the hell that's about at all. Um, Yeah, the entire time I'm like, where are this kid's parents? Yeah, like, like, where are his parents? What are they doing? Why do they not care about him? Were they in Vancouver when he was almost murdered? Like, what what is happening here? And I mean, a five minute,
1: a a very quick scene where it's very obvious that these are just stage parents who are worried, who are. Pushing this kid because he's dollar signs to them, and that's that's it would be enough. Like they they could have, I feel like that might have been like you know his his parents are always busy. I think they're stage moms. You know they're they're just exploiting their kid. That's the sense I get. But it would have been nice to have that. But it was a pretty packed
0: episode. That is true, and I and I think that the, I mean the, the the more pressing problem with Gibson Praise is that the the child actor who plays him is is not very good, and yeah he's he's asked to do a lot he's asked to play a sort of off-putting um you know mature before his time a small mm. child and doesn't really pull it off very well just kind of really comes across as a bit flat and he's he's the <sighs> He's not interesting and he's also just a plot device and he's not a character. Yeah. He's a way for the X Files to have its big reveal ending to get to to, to get them to the place where the X Files are shut down and the cigarette smoking man goes in there and burns the files. And I don't really get a sense of the episode's not really doing much to sell me on the idea that Gibson praises is the key to the X Files. That is almost a nonsensical line on its face. <laughs> I don't know. Like, he, he's this, he's a problem.
1: Well, where this reminds me of is, and I hope I'm not confusing my episodes, but when they shut down the X-Files in the first place, that was sur- an episode that was surrounding a sample of alien bacteria that had chromosomes that were in such a way that have not, that different from all life on this earth. They have found scientific proof of truly alien DNA, and there are machinations and problems around that, but... In terms of their function, Gideon, or whatever the hell his name is, Gibson Praise is functionally equivalent to a strand of alien DNA. That is true. And I guess that, again, and he's a kid, he is somebody who feels... See, like, they're trying to do a little bit of inevitability of fate with him. He does seem to think that what's going to happen... They're going to kill him. He knows that's good, that's what's going to happen to him. He doesn't even care enough to explain to Diana that she's about to be shot. He feels very fatalistic about that. And maybe that is part of it. He is just kind of being pulled along by fate. And so he makes himself a plot device. I don't know.
0: Right, but it's kind of like, why I spend so much time on this kid? Yeah. And... and- I just, I just question. Like we are talking about a television show, right? And this was, this was written by people. They, they yeah. could have done a better job coming up with a MacGuffin that would feel satisfying. And it doesn't have to be Gibson. Praise a psychic child. Um, it just doesn't. Especially have to when be they.
1: That. Especially when this is the second magical child that we've had in this season.
0: This is not even the second magical child we've had. Like this. It, this isn't even the. First or second magical child we've had in the x files like all together, I mean we had one like way back, yeah, first yeah, season. yeah, there was another one like the third season. I mean, this is something the show and does
1: which which is fine, that's a fine theme to put in your science horror show, okay, we have a weird kid,
0: true, but true. Uh, but I don't, know, to, I don't know to a certain degree, I feel like this is this is not as much of a conversation, this is more of like us going down a checklist, but. In a sense, that's kind of what this episode is. I don't know that it really hangs together very cohesively, and I think that there are a lot of moving pieces and a lot of moving parts, and it doesn't necessarily know how to construct all of them into a satisfying plot. It's, It seems yeah. – I mean – what i what i think is the main problem with this episode and i have to be clear that i like i like this episode i think it's entertaining yeah. i watched it and i was enjoying it and it's it moves along and everything and it's just when you start thinking about it that it's a little unsatisfying because they had this place in mind they had to get to where the movie is going to be because they wrote yeah. the movie and filmed it and it was ready to go i mean it was in post production at this point so they kind of worked backwards they engineered this backwards and I don't yeah. think that really works very well. No, I
1: agree. The mythology for the pa- the past couple mythology episodes, you know, it, it, especially with after stuff like Max and Tempest Fugit, which were very tight. Uh, the season five mythology episodes have largely felt like, hey, remember this plot? Well, you'll get to see it in the movie. Hey, remember this character? He's gonna be back this summer. And oh my God, the X Files have burned down. Like the. the and it's valid for this episode to be something that the fans are going to be talking about for a month or two before they get to see it uh, when it when the theater opens. And I think that's okay
0: for that kind of context. I I guess, but, I mean, it still has it, to stand on it's, its own, and it still has to, to be a satisfying season finale, and it's kind of not. I mean— I would— s- well well the, the the question is is the season finale the end or the film? Yes, sure, but at the same time this is still a television series. I mean I ha- yeah, I have no, this I, know, pro- I, I have know. this problem in general, you know. I no, I have talked in the I past know, about, and- like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how you have to like watch 17 movies to make sense of the Avengers 4. Um which yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. not going to do and I have no interest in doing. It's a movie, it should stand on its own. Uh, this is a television series. It should tell a satisfying story that has something to do with what has come before and tying it into a movie I think is i mean I like the movie. I think the movie's pretty successful at what it tries to do, and we will talk about that next week, especially in conjunction with with this episode but this episode is trying to do too much and I'm not sure that it's, it's quite able to pull it off. I mean, the X-Files has always been a very ambitious show, but the mythology episodes always felt a little unambitious in a certain sense, at least textually, yeah. because they just weren't, they were telling a story. They're very good at it, but there's are not the episodes to really show off the like metaphorical chops of the X-Files writing room. Yeah. And, and I don't know what this episode is. It's kind of all over the place. And I'm also not really sure why it feels the need to like introduce a new character and introduce this character who gave some praise yeah. and bring Spender back and bring the cigarette smoking man back and bring cry back. And you know, like what, what is going on here?
1: Yeah, no, again, and, and I guess I don't necessarily mean to say that I feel it's successful. No, I, I, I guess it's more that the, this is what I see as the motivations be- behind this episode being what it is. And, If it's a failed experiment, I think it's a failed experiment. Um, Sure. Again, and again, I I can only use my own anecdotal, but it was not a very good choice for getting a larger audience as something for the hardcore fans. Maybe doing this in this way at that time worked. I mean, certainly this was not the kind of thing that had been done much on television before. This hadn't really been tried out in this way, and... Maybe a later version, a refined version of this technique, would
0: have been better. That yeah, that's fair. That's certainly fair, and I, I think that w- we will see the X Files reinvent itself a lot. Yeah, um, at least uh, at least twice more, arguably three times, so maybe four times. Um, so look forward <laughs> to that. The X Files is a very confusing show and movie.
1: And we only have like four seasons left, though. Uh, well, no, there's, more there's like six,
0: but there's, yeah, I mean, six seasons, but the last six two are but pretty short.
1: F- for three or four reinventions in that in six, it, it's six times, and at least one of and one of them is a reboot, so that's understandable, at least. But that's a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the eighth season is kind of a, a reset. The the second movie is kind of a reset. The tenth season is kind of a reset. The eleventh season is kind of a reset. So yeah. There are a lot of resets involved here is what I'm trying to say.
1: And if there's a season 12, that'll probably be a reset because Gillian Anderson has said no. So, <laughs> I really did appreciate all of the commercials for Fox's animated lineup in 1998, though. Uh, that That was very nice to know what shows we could have been watching.
0: It's true. And you know what? I agree with Gibson Praise. King of the Hill is a very good television show.
1: You know, I never really watched it, and I was obviously not in a position to appreciate it when I first saw it. And so I went for most of my life as in King of the Hill sucks. So I've never really watched an episode. And now there's a lot of people who, like yourself, praise it. And yes, it's a Mike Judge show, so I can see how it has merit. I just have not revisited it.
0: You know, there's a lot of TV shows. Watch what you want. That's what I always say. All right, well, I think that'll do it for the end. I think that'll do it for Season 5 of The X-Files. If you have any thoughts on either of the episodes we just talked about, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com. As we said earlier, you can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow, if you would like to support us financially. It does also support our other podcast, Trek About. This week, we are talking about the Voyager episodes, Leighton Image, and The Bride of Chaotica. And if you give us $5 a month or more, you can check out our special patrons-only episodes. The one that we released in May a couple weeks ago was on the movie Contact. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're there. Tuning In Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcast review for tuning in. It is the best way for new people to find the show. Okay, a little bit of a different episode next week. As promised, we will be talking about the first X-Files movie entitled mm. The X-Files. So join us next week for The X-Files, the movie, released June 19th, 1998. The Mac, why do you-